history is full of turning points. There's times when tragedy strikes and hope seems lost. The Bible is really full of such turning points. Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The flood covers the entire planet. Moses and the children of Israel are hemmed in between the armies of Pharaoh and the Red Sea. The armies of Israel are challenged by a nine-foot-tall Philistine giant. And even King Saul is afraid to face him. But in each of these events, there, is, there follows another turning point where victory is snatched from the jaws of defeat. God sacrifices an animal and provides a covering for Adam and Eve. And so it points to true deliverance. God parts the Red Sea and makes a way for Israel to pass through unharmed while Pharaoh and his armies are drowned. God empowers David, the shepherd boy, to kill the giant Goliath. God provides, through the, the, the work of, of Noah and Ark, to spare nine souls out of the entire planet. Well, on Friday, when we looked at Ephesians, or rather at Isaiah 52.13 to 53.9, we also saw that the, uh, several turning points. This is the fourth of the servant songs, and, and in the servant song, we, we see that the servant of the Lord first is exalted, and then he is beaten to the point of not even being recognizable as a human being. Then we see kings amazed at him. And then we see his humble beginnings and his rejection. Then we see the forgiveness that he has achieved for us. And then we saw him oppressed and afflicted and killed. And that's where we ended it on Friday. We ended it with, the, with verse 9 of Isaiah 53, with the death of Jesus, with him put into the grave. But that wasn't the end. There's another turning point coming. This is the, the greatest turning point in the entire Bible. This is the greatest turning point in all history. Like the preacher S.M. Lockwood declared, but it's only Friday. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Well, we have arrived at this Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday, 2,000 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, after that first Resurrection Sunday. So this morning we're going to see how this greatest turning point in all of history speaks to us. We saw on Friday how in Isaiah 52, 13 to 15, God speaks. And in 53, 1 to 3, the witnesses speak. And in 53, 4 to 6, the redeemed speak. In 53, 7 to 9, the crucifixion speaks. And now in 53, 10 to 12, the resurrection speaks. The resurrection speaks, but what does it say? Not what does it say to you in some subjective sense, but what does it say as objective truth? For the resurrection of Jesus Christ is reality. And 53, 10 to 12, 
presents the reality of the resurrection, again, 700 years before these events took place. And it's vital that this passage does speak to you. It's vital that it speaks to you, but your understanding must line up with the message that God intended. So let's look first at verse 10 as we see how the resurrection speaks of pain and promise. Of pain and promise. So let me read it again for us. Isaiah 53.10 Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. On Friday we saw that men are responsible for the death of Jesus. The, the Jews rejected him. The Jews handed him over. The Jews demanded, crucify him. The Romans are also responsible. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, gave the order. The Roman soldiers beat him and whipped him, and others nailed his hands and his feet to the cross. But they weren't the only men who were responsible. We are responsible. Our sins necessitated his crucifixion. So men are responsible, and here speaking generically, but it's true that men and women are responsible. Listen to, to Peter in Acts 2.23 on his part of his sermon on Pentecost. He said, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Look at that second phrase first. He's saying to, the, to these Jews who are listening that you crucified him. You did it. He did it through the hands of lawless men. And many took responsibility. They took responsibility in, in response to that message. They were cut to the heart and they asked, Brothers, what should we do? And so Peter responded, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And on that day, 3,000 souls 3,000 men and women were added to the church. And many, therefore, took responsibility and received him as Lord, but others, others who heard that message, rejected the message. They rejected Christ himself. According to Acts 2.23, who else is responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus? God was responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus first half of, of Acts 2.23 says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The crucifixion was not plan B. Crucifixion was plan A. All along, God knew that, that, that Adam and Eve were going to fall, and He knew that they would incur guilt, and that guilt would be transferred to all of their progeny, to all of their children, to all of us. plan from eternity past was that he would send his son as a sacrifice for our sins. This was not imposed upon Jesus. He willingly went to the cross out of love for his heavenly father and love for us. But it was God's plan. 
Yes, the, the wounds were inflicted by men. As Isaiah says here in 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. As we saw on Friday, the greatest grief that Jesus suffered on the cross, the greatest pain that Jesus suffered on the cross was that his heavenly Father poured out his wrath on him. That he forsook his Son. And for the first time in all of eternity, there was division in the Godhead. He was, we saw in verse, in verse 4 of chapter 53 that he was stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And we saw that God pierced Jesus, his own son, for our transgressions. That God crushed him for our iniquities. And that God placed upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. God did that to his son for us. And that's what Isaiah is saying. And in 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him, has put him to grief. This is, he's pointing back here to what had happened. And he's, Isaiah is explaining, explaining the reason for the pain. That God was providing a sacrifice. Again, that God's eternal plan was he would send his son to die in the place of his people. Father put the Son to grief as He poured out His holy wrath on Him in our place. Many liberal theologians stumble at this. They say that Jesus merely died as an example. My friends, Jesus did not just die as an example. He died as a substitute. Many seeker-sensitive leaders stumble at this. They don't want to offend unbelievers with such a negative message. And if you listen to, to the message in, in many, in many seeker-sensitive churches, they're, they're sanitized. They don't really talk about the blood of Jesus. But the, the fact that, that, that he was punished for, his, for, for our sins by his Father. Many emergent church leaders stumble at this. Emergent church leader Brian McLaren blasphemes when he refers to the punishment of the Son by the Father in our place as cosmic child abuse. This is Malcolm McLaren, this is rather Brian McLaren, a very popular emergent author. He's blaspheming the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Father made, and made the Son an offering for sin. Do you stumble at this? Do you reject this message or do you rejoice in it? This is the heart of the gospel. There's only salvation for those who have embraced, embraced the reality of Christ dying in our place. There had to be a sin offering. There had to be a substitute because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Hebrews 9, 22. There, there is a, a trail of blood all the way through the Old Testament that of doves and bulls and lambs and goats and it all points to this. It all points to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The, the blood of, of doves and bulls and lambs and goats could not ever atone for our sin because... Hebrews 10 forces that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. These were merely things that pointed to the sacrifice of Christ. 
the Old Testament saints didn't have faith in the, the efficacy or the power of those sacrifices, but they believed that they pointed to the sacrifice of the Messiah. This was their hope. The trail of blood in the Old Testament points to the sacrifice of the Son. God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, Romans 3.25. This, this, this is a word that might be foreign to some of you, propitiation. What, what does that mean? This is a Bible word. You really need to know what it means. Uh, a propitiation is basically a sacrifice that turns away wrath. Jesus was the sacrifice that turned away the wrath of God for his people. And so Jesus died as a substitute for our sins. He made atonement for our sins. One way of looking at the word atonement is at one We were estranged. We were separated from God. We were under his wrath because of our sin. But through the, the cross of Christ, we have been brought to, to him, to the Father, being one with him in the gospel. Well, now in the second part of, of verse 10, we, we reach the, the final turning point of Isaiah 53. And, and with this, the, 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 the light begins to crack through. We begin to really see what's, what's really going on here. So far, the events that Isaiah describes have been, have been good news for the redeemed. Right? Good news for us who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, but, but not so much for the Redeemer. We received the blessings of salvation, but he suffered. And that's really been, been running all the way through this, this sermon song, that he suffered in our place. He suffered excruciating torture at the hands of men. He suffered the guilt for our sin, even though he was sinless. He suffered the rejection and wrath of the Heavenly Father in our place. But now we see that there is good news for the Redeemer too. First we see that that that. His death, as awful as it was, was not the end that it appeared to be. In fact, it is, it is, it is the promise of something more. Look there in the middle of verse 10. He shall see his offspring. Now this is the same person who is dead in verse 9, but he shall see his offspring. This is not the end, it is the beginning. This is the promise of a spiritual heritage. Death of Christ means life. <coughs> means life for those who follow him. Because he died for their sins, there would be a host of people from around the world and throughout the ages that would be granted <coughs> eternal life because he is the firstborn of many brothers, Romans 8 29. And we, we see, secondly, the promise of the, that is not an end because he shall prolong his days. He shall prolong his days. His death is not the end for him either. His death was only temporary. Three days and three nights after his crucifixion, he rose from the grave. God raised him up. Loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Acts 2.24, that's what, what Peter goes on to say in that Pentecost sermon. That, that it was impossible for him to be held by death. Just imagine for a moment. Imagine for a moment what must have been going through those women's 
minds when they went to the, the, to the tomb. They went with spices to anoint his body. And what did they find there? They found the stone rolled away. There were angels declaring to them, just, just think for a moment what it must have been going through their minds when those angels declared, He is not here, for He is risen. He is not here, for He has risen. The horror of, of what they had just seen and experienced gave way to ecstatic joy. And as they ran to, to tell the disciples, Jesus himself, Jesus himself met him and said, greetings. It, it couldn't get any better than that. Just imagine how happy you would feel if one of your loved ones, and, and many of us here, most if not all of us here, have lost loved ones. If you were to be walking down the street and, and they would appear to you and say, Hi there. Just imagine for a moment how that would feel. Well, this is infinitely greater. This is infinitely greater. This is, this is no mere human being who has, has, has died. This is, this is Jesus Christ. The King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the one who has risen from the grave. It does not get any better than this. That though he was dead, he has raised from the grave. With this last phrase of verse 10. Then we see that it was, it was the will of the Lord to prosper in, sorry, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. As it was the Lord's will to crush him, it is now the Lord's will that will prosper in his hand. The Lord's will will prosper in his hand. In other words, it's not the end of his ministry either. That, that his death was not the end of his ministry. That the ministry of Christ was fulfilled through his suffering and it will continue for all for all of, of the ages of this world until his return. His ministry will continue. So we've seen how the resurrection speaks of, of pain and promise, but now in verse 11, we see how the resurrection speaks of satisfaction and justification. Satisfaction and justification. Look at, at verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied, and by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Here we see the continuation of what we saw at the end of verse 10. Even through the anguish of his soul, Christ shall see the fruit of his suffering. He shall see and he shall be satisfied. He will know that it was worth it. It was worth the mocking. It was worth the pain. It was worth the anguish. It was worth the rejection. Why? What could be worth all of that suffering? You. You. He's saying you are worth that suffering. Look what it says. He says, 
My servant, this is God talking here. My servant will make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Of course, the son was ultimately doing this out of love for his father, but he was doing it out of love for his bride. He was doing it out of love for you, for the elect, for everyone who would believe in him. Do you know Jesus? Are you trusting in Jesus? You've been counted righteous. You've been counted righteous. This is the first half of the, the double imputation of the gospel. Again, imputation basically just means input, inputted. Christ's righteousness has been imputed to you. When you repent of your sin and put your faith in him, his righteousness is given to you. The righteousness of Christ is given to you. Do you understand what that means? It means that when God looks at you, He doesn't see all of the sin that, that you've committed. He doesn't see all the things that, that you've done wrong. He doesn't see all the things that you're going to do wrong in the future. When He looks at you, brothers and sisters, He sees His Son. He sees the righteousness of His Son. That that perfect record, record of obedience has been given to you by faith in the Gospel. Every act of love, every act of obedience, every sacrifice, every service that Christ ever did is credited to your account. That's the imputation of Christ's righteousness. But with this last phrase of verse 11, there's another form of imputation. He shall bear their iniquities. He shall bear their iniquities. Notice here first that it's, it's many that are accounted righteous, and it's this many whose iniquities are also born. This is, this is not universalism. What Jesus achieved on the cross was, was for his elect, yes, yes, able to save everybody from every tribe and, and tongue and nation from around the world for all time. But effective, but effective for his people. Effective for the elect. Are you one of the many who have received the righteousness of Christ? Are you one of the many whose guilt has been borne by Him? Has His, has your sin been imputed to Him? When you turn from your sin and turn to Christ, He takes your guilt. In actual fact, that he, he or has already done that. When he said on the cross, he said it is finished. He's already achieved that for his elect. But what happens in your faith is you appropriate, appropriate that, is that you lay hold of that saving work of Christ. And you say, that's mine. That's mine. That's what faith is. To lay hold of the, the saving work of Christ 
on the cross. Paul says in Romans 4.25 that, that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And that then takes us to verse 12. The resurrection speaks of reward and intercession. The resurrection speaks of reward and intercession. Verse 12 says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus was raised for our justification. When you think of the, of the saving work of Christ, you can't, you can't isolate just part of it. You need to look at it in, in the whole thing. That, that the, re, the resurrection is part of the crucifixion. And it's all part of his lifelong ministry of loving obedience to the Father and, and love for his people. The resurrection demonstrates that God was satisfied with Christ's sacrifice. That he was pleased with him. Remember how things ended on the cross. Jesus crying out in agony. My God, God, why have you forsaken me? The resurrection proves that Jesus is no longer forsaken. Jesus is no longer forsaken. The, the cross looked like a defeat, but it was in fact victory. The greatest victory that has ever been achieved and will ever be achieved for all time. And twice in, in verse 12, we, we are told that there will, will be a division of reward. First God says, I will divide him a portion with the many, and then he shall divide the spoil with the strong. This picture is similar to what we described in Ephesians 4.8 of a victorious Roman general returning from battle, leading a, a triumphal procession, par parading the spoils of war through the streets. And these spoils of war would then be distributed among the soldiers. So Christ here is the conquering general. As John Calvin explains, although he was crucified through the weakness of the flesh, yet by the power of the Spirit, he rose from the dead and triumphed over his enemies. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says that, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus defeated not only death, but also the world and the flesh and the devil, and he did it for you. He did it for you. To him belong the spoils of war. But what are the spoils of this war? You. You are the spoils of this war. You are the victor's prize. You are the portion. As Charles Simeon said, if, if Christ will possess us as a portion, he must take us as a spoil. Have you laid hold of the victory that has been accomplished for you in Christ? If you laid hold of it, if you have, then you are his portion. You are his treasure. Is he yours? Is Jesus your treasure? He won the victory. 
Do you have a part in that victory? Let's now read the last part of Isaiah 53, 12. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This verse lists four things that his victory is grounded on. First of all, he poured out his soul to death. He experienced the agony knowing what was coming in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew what was coming. And he recoiled at the thought that yet his love for his father and for his people was greater. And so he was obedient even to the point of death. Romans 5, 18 and 19 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience many will, become, will be made righteous. Many will be made righteous. Because he poured his soul out to death. Second, he was numbered among the transgressors. And Jesus applied this verse specifically to himself. He told the, the disciples just prior to going to the Mount of Olives, just where he, where he was arrested in, in Luke 22, 37, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus was applying Isaiah 53, 12 to himself. That what is written about me has its fulfillment. He was the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. He was considered guilty. He was numbered, not, not just with thieves that, that were crucified on either side of him, but, but all of all transgressors who would believe in him with, for all time. He was considered to be, to be a, 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 the vilest of sinners because he claimed to be God, but also because he bore the sins of his people. Next we see, thirdly, that he bore the sin of many. Although he was sinless, he actually bore our sins. This is, again, this is that second part of the imputation. The imputation of our sin to Christ. 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that, he might, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Similarly, Hebrews 9, 28. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He has already done that. He does not need to be sacrificed again. Like in the Roman Catholic Mass, this was a, his sacrifice was sufficient. The one sacrifice of Jesus was sufficient. So when he turns, when he comes back again, he's, he's not going to deal with the sin of his people. He's already done that. He's already achieved the victory. And he's coming to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Notice again that it doesn't say here that he bore the sin of everybody. It said he bore the sin of many. Again, the cross was effectual. It accomplished redemption for all who would believe and trust in him. So Christ's victory is grounded on his obedience to, the, to his death, to be numbered with the transgressors, and bearing the sins of many. But there's one final way that his victory is assured. That he makes intercession for the transgressors. Beloved, victory for us is assured. 
Because Christ's victory is assured. It is accomplished. Your salvation is guaranteed because Jesus and his ministry and his priesthood still continues. He is alive. He is alive at this very moment and he is interceding for you at this very moment. Hebrews 7.25 Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him Near to God through him, since he always, hear this, he always lives to make intercession for them. And in Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Jesus is interceding before the Father for you at this very moment. He is praying to His Heavenly Father for you right now. Just think about that. When, when you face trials and temptations, remind yourself of this fact. That Jesus is praying for you. You know, it's a huge blessing to have other Christians praying for you. But Jesus Himself lives and is making intercession for you. Remind yourselves of that, and you will find strength in the midst of temptation. So as we draw to a conclusion here, you can see that the resurrection speaks. The resurrection speaks loudly. Are you listening? Are you listening? Never forget your need of the gospel. For those who are, are born again, for those who, who are truly Christians, the resurrection is speaking to you, is reminding you of your need for the gospel today. Today. You need to preach the gospel to yourself today as much as you did on that first day when you were saved. You need the gospel of Jesus Christ every day. It's not something you can move on from. But for those who have not yet put their trust in Christ, you have not had the saving work of Christ applied to you. You stand condemned by God for your sin. You cannot claim ignorance. A failure to understand what this means comes in, in large part from a failure to look to God's word. We've done that again here this morning. We've examined the cross as the Bible explains it. But the biggest factor that will blind you to the truth of the gospel is your sin. You will not be able to see the truth while you're hanging on to sin in your life, while you're living in active rebellion against God. You have seen your guilt. You know that you are guilty, and you know that you have no defense. Are you going to reject Jesus and all he did? Or are you instead going to trust in him, to put your faith in him? Are you going to try to, to, to trust in your own righteousness? Or are you instead going to trust in his perfect righteousness? Are you going to trust in your futile attempt to earn salvation? Or are you instead going to trust in his victory? was achieved that purchased your salvation. I wonder, is the Lord doing a work in your heart at this very moment? Now, I can't see into anybody's hearts. 
I don't know who, who is here as a Christian and who isn't. Now, some of you I know relatively well, and, and, and I see the fruit of the Spirit in your lives, and, 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 and I would have, have confidence that you are saved. But I don't know your heart before the Lord. I don't know who is here this morning who is truly saved and who is not, but, but is the Lord doing a work in your heart? Is the Lord causing you to rejoice in these things and to cling to these things, to cling to Christ, the risen and victorious Savior? If the Lord is, is doing a work and you would like to, to talk to somebody about that this morning, then please come and, and talk to me after the service. Don't leave here with, without, without talking to somebody about the salvation that, that you can achieve and, and, and have in Christ. And maybe you're here as somebody who's a Christian but, but wants to understand these things in a deeper way and wants, wants to, to deal with, with unrepentant sin in your life, then also come and talk to me after the service. I would be more than happy to, to talk with you about these things as God word, God's Word reveals them. All of us, Christians and non-Christians need to turn away from our sin and have Jesus at the center of our lives to trust this risen and glorious Savior. Let's pray to Him together now. Lord Jesus, we thank You for all that You suffered for us on the cross. Lord, the humiliation, the torture, the anguish, the, rest, the rejection. Lord, we thank you that those things you suffered, you suffered for us in our place. <coughs> but Lord Jesus, we thank you that the grave couldn't hold you. That three days later you arose from the grave, victorious over death, victorious over sin, victorious over the devil, victorious over hell. Lord, we who are in you Thank you for your victory that was accomplished for us. We thank you that you have taken away our sin, all of it, every scrap of it. And Lord, you have given us your full righteousness. Lord, what can we say to these things but, but to call on your name and to rejoice in you, Lord Jesus, the God of our salvation. For it's in your holy name we pray. Thank you.